Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technology is the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and make your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Steve Ovens. Welcome, sir. Good evening, sir. How are you? I am doing great. Hey, Chaz is with us from New York. Phone calls always go to the front of the line. So if you have a question, give us a call at 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. Chaz, you're on Ask Noah. Good evening. Noah, long time no talk. How are you doing? It has been a while. I'm doing great. How have you been? Not too bad. And I'd like to think that the reason I have to call less is because I'm getting better with Linux. Oh, I also great. don't want to sound too uh, too cocky. <laughs> uh, and uh, my question tonight is about Nextcloud. All right, lay it on me. I'm actually, I'm actually, yeah, I'm actually uh, been trying to do better about uh, owning my own data, as is kind of a thing with the Ask Noah show. And I've got a Synology disk station running a bunch of Docker containers. Hindsight being 2020, I probably could have done that a bit more efficiently, but oh well. And what I've I've actually managed to get a NextCloud instance running, but what I've noticed is that I don't seem to be able to access it via the mobile application unless I'm connected to a VPN on my phone. Right. And what's interesting to me is it seems as though I can just type in the URL to the instance uh, free via the browser and access regardless of whether or not I'm on a VPN. And uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. It's uh you know, it seems to me like it would be the opposite of that. Like the app would have some form of, you know, uh, higher permission, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, than just the uh, pointing the browser to it. So I was wondering if you'd ever encountered that and if you had any uh, advice on it. Okay, well, let's start here. So you have it set up running as a Docker container on your Synology disk station. What, what kind, what firewall? do you have set up and how is that configured? So for example, do you have port forwarding enabled to Nextcloud? Is it entirely closed off? Is your Nextcloud instance sitting on a public IP address? What does that look like? Uh, it, port forwarding is enabled. Uh, give me one second here. I, I'm, uh, I've got a URL set up through Synology that, uh, like a DDNS type thing that okay. allows me to access from browsers. And it's also the, the HTTP, yeah, the HTTPS uh, instance, so that when I, uh, you know, try to access not on uh, from a computer that's not on my personal Wi-Fi, it doesn't scream at me. So, is it a phone? Is the phone iOS or Android? It is Android running Lineage OS with Micro G, and I'm I got the this is the next cloud version from the Asteroid Store. So in general, NextCloud should work over 443 and 80. So if you have the port forwarding set up, it should work both in a web instance as well as the app. I'm not aware of the app using any different ports or any different way to connect, although I do understand what you're saying about, hey, does it have some sort of, you know, uh, does it have some sort of known quantity way to connect in over just going through a web browser? But I'm not, I don't believe that's how it works. Um 
So you said it works in a web browser. If you if you point a web browser to your public IP or to your dynamic DNS, then it pulls up Nextcloud, but it won't connect from the app. Uh, provide if I'm on mobile data, and uh, if I'm on mobile data, so if I'm using the browser, then it works fine uh, without the VPN engaged. Um, if I'm going from the app, it won't. Uh, I won't be able to access the files at all. Um, it'll just get the little circle thing. How about if you're on somebody uh, else's Wi-Fi? Over. Uh, same thing on someone else's Wi-Fi, too. That's a good point. I, I meant to mention that because I did the same test at work uh, on their Wi-Fi. And same deal. i got to have my Proton VPN engaged to be able to access files. Your Proton VPN. So you're not even VPNing back to your house. You're, you're VPNing into uh, like a server, uh, like, a, like a Proton VPN server? Yes, via WireGuard. Steve, I'm confused. You got any thoughts? I mean, it's, it smells like DNS to me, um, and I can't say that this is the issue, but I can tell you when I've had um, strange issues like this, it has been completely that the DNS did not propagate to wherever I was. So the reason why it might work on a VPN is because the VPN is connecting to a different DNS server that's upstream that may have gotten the propagation because it is dynamic DNS Um you don't have much control over the time to live or how it propagates throughout the world. Um, that's my guess. I I don't actually know. I was just checking so, out the. Sea. I'll I'll tell you where I'll tell you where my mind jumps to. It's a little bit more cynical than than where Steve's mind jumps to. So I've I, we had we had we've had issues before where clients will come and they'll say, "I can't get this to work over mobile data," and what it ends up being is that their cell phone provider blocks certain traffic under certain circumstances and but but what rules act out more or less is you said you've tried from other people's wi-fi and you're still having an issue yes um going back to the dns thing mm-hmm. um, i have kind of briefly tested that i run uh i have a private dns engaged on uh on in the Android settings via next DNS, but I did shut that off to test that as well. And same deal still can't access through uh Wi-Fi or uh, mobile data without the, the uh, VPN. This, this sounds like um, something you might actually want to file an issue with them on the GitHub because the, um, the I know from personal experience, the Android um, app, definitely has some niggling issues. So for example, I use mine to auto upload photos and what's been happening since, I don't know, I want to say July is it'll upload the photo and then try and upload again and be like, Hey, I got a file conflict. And every five minutes it pings my phone that I have to resolve this file conflict. The only way that I can do that is to go into the app and actually delete it from the upload queue. Um, because just picking the resolution right in the app doesn't do anything. So, it, and that's been an open bug for a while. So I know that the Android app is um, suffering some uh, irritations lately. I'm sorry that we're not able to help more, yeah, Chaz. I, I, I guess, yeah, I, we, we'd suggest you go circle back with, with Nextcloud proper and um, and see if they have some answers for you. And if they do, please let me know. Or call back or shoot an email or something because I would love to know, but I'm consider us stumped. You could also try sure the thing. own cloud app because 
because it still speaks the same protocol, they were forked from one another. The own cloud app should still work. And then you would be able to, that's kind of how I, I have diagnosed things in the past is kind of doing AB testing where mm. you get a client that will connect and one that doesn't, you can say, Hey, it's actually your application. It works over here. Okay. I'll look into that. Thank you. All right. Thanks for the call. one 450 notes 855-450-6624. The email live at com. Naylor joins us in our interactive Jitsi room. Hey, Naylor, welcome to the program. Hey, Noah. How are you guys doing? Steve? We're, we're doing great. Hey, Naylor. Uh, long I, time no hear from. Yes, sir. Uh, I need to, I need to follow up with, isn't that the most annoying bug where you, your pictures are constantly arguing with you? Cause that's what I use it for getting my pictures from my phone to, to my desktop and the fact that it's complaining all the time that there's a conflict. I've got 11 conflicts now that I just kind of ignored. Isn't yeah, that crazy? I couldn't do that. Yeah. It just, it just keeps <laughs> spamming my phone. And so like I yeah. can't get the notification to go away unless I clear it. Right. So the question I have, because uh, the previous caller called in about uh, own cloud anyway, or next cloud. Um, there's no, I mean, we all love uh, Google and Google Docs, right? One thing that I really do like about Google is the the ease of collaborative editing. And I hate to, to, to work with other people and say, hey, let's open a Google Doc so that we can collaboratively work on something. The only thing I can find on NextCloud or OwnCloud for that matter is Collaborata online. Mm-hmm. But don't you have to have a license for that? And it's got to be hosted somewhere else. Is there... Anything else like that, that, you know, I understand you can do a, a markdown thing on uh, some of these websites, but I'm thinking about spreadsheets and all that. Is there no collaborative open source software like what Google does? Steve? So wow. I'm not aware of the spreadsheet. There's There are tons of things that you can use. So NextCloud actually doesn't require anything if you just want to, uh, like, um, like a, a document. My wife and I use Nextcloud for that sort of stuff. So it definitely doesn't, the built-in notes app or whatever they call it these days yeah. works just fine for that sort of thing. But for spreadsheets, I've come up with nothing. Okay. I, I have used the built-in notes app and I'm sure you could probably install a, a markdown app that would allow you to do the same thing. But I was specifically looking for a spreadsheet, but I just thought I'd throw it out there and ask. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate it. I also have, I've never, well, to be fair, I've never had a desire or, or, or attempt to try to use a spreadsheet. And for, for anybody listening that heard Chris's comment said, Hey, you know, there's a markdown thing that runs in a browser. I think HedgeDoc is kind of the go-to for that. Um, that's what we use to do all of the show notes. And it, it's the collaborative editing is fantastic there, but you're right. You're not working in a spreadsheet. You're working in a, in a markdown file. Yeah, well, when, when um, a certain uh, buddy of mine and I are working on quotes and stuff, we'll we've, we've in the past used Google Docs to uh, get parts and how many we're going to use, and it's just easier in a spreadsheet for you know we got to get thirteen APs and fourteen cameras, and it's going to cost X per, and here's the link to where we're going to buy it, and it's just well, easier in a spreadsheet sort of deal to to collaborate on that. The other side of that, right, is when you're going to work with that data, then it becomes easier to import and export that data. Tiny in the chat room, he joins us at geeklab.ninja, says, posts an article on how to install OnlyOffice in NextCloud Hub. Have you looked at OnlyOffice? I saw that the other day when I was looking at it, but I didn't 
dive into it. I just, again, I'm sitting here listening while sorting an old toolbox into a new toolbox and thought, hey, I got a question. Well, that's what, that's what we're here for. So, and I, I appreciate the question. What I would tell you is I would, I would invite you to check out OnlyOffice. I've never used it in Nextcloud, so I can't speak to the, um, the usefulness or collaborative features of it, but I've used only office on local PCs a ton. We've got a, a bunch of clients that are doing that. Um, and it works out pretty well for them. So I'd invite you to give that a shot again. The numerous ways that you can join the program. Mumble is new to us. So we're, we have a mumble server running and you're welcome to join us that way. You're welcome to join us via our Jitsi link, which is available at geeklap.ninja, or you can call good old fashioned telephone at 855-450-6624. We'll take your questions. We'll take your contrib- contributions to the discussion. So Steve, this last week you've had a, you've had some home automation uh, experiences that you'd like to share. Uh, tell me what's new in home automation. Well, I'll spare you the, my my usual Zigbee rant because it it kind of melted down on me again this week, which is <laughs> a little embarrassing. It's like, you know, I don't have a giant network. I've got thirty something devices with with six or seven routers, so it's not like it should be overloading the thing. So I, I'm just going to forego all that and just kind of pass along. Um, I was trying to automate my projector room, and I've got all of these disparate. Uh, devices down there. I'm like, how do I do this? Right. Universal remote would be really great, but how do I, how do I actually make the universal remote to talk to things that don't, aren't necessarily IR? And it struck me. So I went in, I got a $20 remote off of uh, Amazon. It's a Roku remote. And the reason why I went with this is because it's got, it's got two power buttons, one blue one and one red one for the devices that actually have a different power on and power off sequence. So my projector has a power on and a power off button. And the reason why that's important is because it sends different signals depending on which button you push. Whereas some things are just binary where it's got a single power button and that means it's the same signal as just flipping a toggle. So what I did was I actually got um, an IR receiver and I hooked that into which, Home Assistant. Hold on, pause. Which which one did you get? Um, so it's called a NeoCool. Okay. Um, so it's a NeoCool receiver, and it's basically, it looks like a little puck, if you guys know about about the size of a puck. Mm-hmm. And um, what I did was, since the it can receive IR signals, I hooked it into Home Assistant with MQTT, and when you push a remote, like this IR remote, it receives the signal on the receiver, puts that into Home Assistant, and then I trigger all kinds of things. So like there's an Apple TV that isn't IR and there's a bunch of stuff that I have kicking around that isn't IR, but I've been able to like finagle into home assistant in one way or the other. So basically I took a standard $20 remote and was able to turn it into, you go downstairs, you push the power button. It turns that there's a little space heater down there, turns the Apple TV on, turns the Bluetooth speaker on, sets the light scenes properly, turns the projector on, you know, um, that sort of thing flashes the lights to let people know that, the theater is now like being used. Um, and I just thought it took me a little bit to kind of come up with that idea of like, how do I bring all these things together? Cause I didn't want people to have to push like multiple buttons. Cause I had seven remotes down there from all the various different um, protocol things that are in my basement. So I just thought I'd share that as a, Hey, I know I'm not the first one that thought of this, but um, you know, if you're looking for a solution of how you might try and bring a bunch of stuff together, that one worked pretty cheaply and effectively, and it's really easy for users to understand. Like, I give this to my seven-year-old dad. Like, here, dad, push the on button. 
can I give you a solution that is not cheap, but very reliable and, a, and, a, and, and would accomplish the same thing if you're looking, if you ever look to do it a different way or somebody else is out there looking to do it a different way? I mean, of course. So there is a company called URC or Universal Remote Control, and they make what I think are some of the best physical remotes out there. They are not inexpensive. I want to underline and, and emphasize in bold italics the whole nine yards. This is, this is a premium solution. But here is a common scenario that we run into all the time. We go into a home or inside of a, uh, a building and somebody will say, hey, I want to control all 40 of these TVs or all 10 of these receivers or whatever it is. By the way, we spent X amount, insert big amount of money into making our house venue, whatever, look super nice. So we don't want to see any rack equipment. We want it all to be in the back. Well, this immediately presents a huge problem because most universal remote controls, like you said, function on IR and that that relies on line of sight from the remote to the device. And so we're instantly at a disadvantage. We also have times where uh, places where people will have either uh, like streaming devices or satellite receivers or whatever it is, and they want them all centralized in a place, but then they want the remotes and the TVs to be spread out over their facility. And so the way that we've accomplished this is with, uh, with, is with URC. And they make a couple of devices that allow you to do this. So the first thing, the MX450, they've got a newer version of it. Color display, um, every button under the sun that you'd ever want. Now it's a $200 remote, so keep that in mind. But what you do is you pair this with one of their, uh, with, with, with one of two devices. You can either use the MRF350, which is an RF base station, and essentially it ta- receives RF commands from the URC, uh, 450, and then it has uh, six different little IR outputs and you can blast uh, six receivers or six TVs or whatever it is. The other way you can do that is they make a URC network interface and you then have the ability to uh, speak the, the, the URC, the remote will talk RF back to the, uh, the, the, the network appliance and then the network appliance can then talk to other devices through the network. And so it's a really elegant way to, like you said, you hand dad or grandpa the remote and he, all he knows is he pushes, I want to watch TV and then all of the macros run, but all of that is being blasted directly onto the device. So it doesn't matter where he has the remote pointed. It doesn't matter where in the house he is or building he is pushes the button. RF signal is going to make it down to the receiver. RF receiver is going to then blast IR back. And so because they're learning remotes, you can program them to control almost any device. Actually, I'm going to go ahead and say you can program to, to control any device because the, I've yet to find one that you can't. Um, and then if you want to get a little fancier, they do make the MX-990, which is a little bit fancier version, comes with a little dock stand and stuff like that. I have used this with, I've, I've, I've used this with, so the newest NVIDIA Shield does not come with an RF receiver, excuse me, an IR receiver. And so it's presented a problem, but the M, if you take the MX 990 and you take the MX 350 and you take the Flirk USB universal receiver, you pair all of those together, you can control an NVIDIA shield from this, from this device. And it, it's pretty responsive. So a much more expensive solution than the way you went about solving it. And so probably not applicable to as wide of an audience, but if there's somebody out there that's thinking to themselves, Hey, I'm, I, I, I'm looking for a solution and that fits the bill for whatever reason, then there it is. That's an interesting solution. Uh, you'd still have to do a little bit of hoop jumping to get that information, the state information back into Home Assistant if you're doing home automation, right? Because that mm. 
that only solves the problem of turning things on, but not doing like presence detection or setting your scene for your lights, you'd still have to find some way to capture, like to trigger off those events to do that sort of thing. Yeah, that's a good point. So I guess the way that I've done it in, in my house is when the, when the IR, when the, when the remote sends a command, part of that macro is, Hey, send this command over the URC network controller to home assistant and say, Hey, toggle this state. And I have the way I've done that in my lighting system. I have fant- basically phantom light switches that I've created inside of the software and just said, hey, these are lights, but they're not really lights. And I just use them to track a state of something. So, hey, that macro's on. The quote unquote phantom light is on. Hey, that light is or that scene is off. That phantom light goes off. And then Home Assistant watches for the state of that light. And if it's on, it does things. And that's also how I do things like if you turn the TV on and you start playing something, it automatically mutes the whole house automation for that for that room so that music doesn't come out of the speakers and switches the amplifier source and all of that. But, um, but yeah, a little bit more complex and certainly a, a little bit bigger budget if you're, if you're going that route, but all options on the table. So Steve, you've been following uh, Linus Sebastian's Linux challenge. Yep. I think like most of the Linux community, I've been keeping an eye on it. So if you, if you're hearing about it from us rather than hearing about it from their YouTube channel, they have concluded their Linux challenge, and it probably comes as no surprise to people in the Linux community. They eventually concluded that Linux is not ready for prime time. It's not the year of the Linux desktop. They're going back to Windows, all the things. So I, 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 I guess where I want to start with this is, is this a completely unbiased look at what it looks like for a average run-of-the-mill user to pick up a PC and install your games and have them work or not work, do you think that that was presented as, is that the typical experience of a Linux user that picks up and takes a computer and says, I have two choices. I can go down road A and I install Windows, or I go down road B and I install Linux, and when I arrive at the end of either road, whatever I've chosen, my games are either going to work or not work. Do you think that they're uh, their perception matches reality of what that looks like if that's your expectation and those are the results. Yeah, I think it depends on how it was set up for them. And what I mean by that is not who physically set up the devices, but just like you set up a, a someone for a topic. So specifically, if you come at it and say, this is just like Windows, then you've framed them to set up just like Windows. Whereas when I hand somebody a machine that's running Linux, I don't tell them it's just like Windows. I just say, here's a machine. Here are the buttons you push. Because we've gotten so many devices in our life that that none of them interface the same way. Um, even the Apple stuff, when you even when you're fully in the Apple ecosystem, they don't all interface the same way. They're getting closer. But the point is, is if you hand somebody something and say, hey, it's just like this other thing, then they're going to use it just like that other thing. And if that's how they were handed uh, Linux, then I think that their interpretation of things was reasonable. I would tell you that I think to a certain degree, the way that the way that it was presented is a bit misleading. So I so I'll give you I'll give you a. um, as Steve would say, a quick for instance, I, I took a little bit of an objection to this idea that, well, a game gets released and it doesn't work for the first five days until Linux comes around, then they hack it together and then it works. If the QA process, if the release process, if the development process is all structured around a Windows environment, 
And as a software company, you develop for Windows, you test on Windows, you QA for Windows, you collect feedback for Windows, and then you release for Windows. Well, no, duh, it's not going to work on Linux on day one. Nobody, that was an afterthought, right? The the concern I have is the implication there, if you just stop at, well, you just couldn't play your game for five days. Like, yes, that's true. But at the same time, the implication there is that Linux could have, should have, or had the ability to prevent or keep that from happening. And I don't believe any one of those three are true. I don't believe that it's the Linux developer's responsibility for a game manufacturer to make their game work on a given platform. I don't think that Linux is at fault for it not working. It's not like there was some technological failure on Linux that prevented the game manufacturer from targeting Linux. And in a lot of cases, I don't even believe that people that work in the Linux ecosystem have the ability to fix the problems that occur inside of a proprietary game developer's game that they developed and released for the Windows ecosystem. So I understand what they're saying, and I'm not trying to take away or make excuses for Linux. Like, I get it. If you sat down and said, I want to play this game on its release day, and I was using this operating system, so I couldn't do it. And if I had been using that operating system, I would have. I understand where they're coming from, and I think there's some validity to that. I think there's another implication that is also untrue, and that's that Windows games have no problems, which, Steve, I think you had an excellent example of that last week of why that's not the case. Yeah, so just for a recap, um, my dad has been on Windows since, you know, DOS, you know, even pre-DOS. And, well, I guess it wouldn't be Windows back on DOS. That was a dumb thing to say. But I guess my point is, is like we're talking decades. And he has been using Steam for, I don't know, same, like 15 years. He's gone through his, his Steam library and basically made a category for all the games that didn't work. They just didn't launch or they crashed or whatever. And he had a sizable number of them. And that wasn't, they didn't work under Linux. That was, they didn't work under Windows 10. And I helped him build his computer. It's not that his computer is underpowered at by any stretch of the imagination. Like he's got a Ryzen 7 in there. Uh, he's got a decent graphics card. He's got 64 gigs of RAM. Like, you know, there's no reason this game, these games shouldn't have run. So I don't think that Linux and comparing Windows and Linux just based on, hey, the games don't run under Linux. Like games don't run under Windows too. Like there's a lot of bugs that happens just for the variance of, of hardware. And if that works on the native platform that the developer has made their game for, Think about how much more complex that is for for an operating system that's basically doing emulation. Right. No, that's absolutely well said. So I I, I guess I'm 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 disappointed. I'm not surprised that they reached the end of this Linux challenge. I do think that they did a really good job of presenting a positive outlook. You notice that they didn't say, well, this is just a colossal disaster. Linux isn't going anywhere. It's just for hobbyists. None of that, right? They, they literally, they, they take the stance that, hey, this gives us a lot of hope for the future. And you're starting to see acknowledgement of this is not a Windows is not the ideal. Uh, ecosystem either. They acknowledge the problems of Windows in a proprietary system that's driven um, by a single company. They acknowledge that stuff up front. So I, I, I'm, I'm disappointed that it didn't work out for them, but again, not entirely surprised and excited to see where it goes in the future. I th- Oop, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I wanted to, my, so you talked about your, I, I suppose, 
little niggle or irritation with, with some of the stuff they presented. My only one was regarding the, the Linux users submitting the bugs and having the smaller market share. Um, that is true. What I thought was interesting was I went out and found, I can't say it was the exact, the exact same developer, but I found a developer that had the same story. He had 700 Linux users submitting 20% of the bugs. But when I read through this, this developer's uh, blog, he actually said only three of those were Linux specific bugs and the others were all bugs that af- affected other people like outside of Linux. And what he found was the quality of bug report from the Linux community was significantly better. And so I thought that was an interesting kind of shadow. Like I was able to confirm their story about, you know, the Linux users submitting tons of bugs. Um, but I think it, I think it's a little disingenuous to say that unless they were all related to Linux, that, that all of that maintenance and overhead is, is borne by the Linux users alone. Oop, didn't have my microphone on there. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, that's, that's very well said. In the feedback segment, our first email comes in from Augustine. Augustine writes in and says, hello, Noah and Steve. On episode 260, Jeremy wrote in and asked about the rotating screen, either using a keyboard or the onboard sensors. There were a couple of answers about the first one, but none about the second one. First of all, the package needed for reading the internal sensors is IIO sensor proxy. It provides the tool monitor sensor that prints the display orientation in the console. It can help you check if the sensors are properly installed. Sometimes vendors build the sensor not in the proper position or hack around it on the Windows drivers. After that, you can hack some scripts together with a monitor sensor, X-Rander, and X-Input. Here's a gist of an example. If you were to use a less hacky way, you would also need to integrate it with your desktop environment. GNOME has it already. And in a distro like Ubuntu, the screen rotation should work out of the box. For KDE Plasma, they're working on support. But if you install the KDE D rotation module for using it, there's also the screen rotator project that should be desktop environment independent. If you need some more information, there's an article on the Arch Wiki. Best regards, Augustine, a.k.a. Pie Crash. So, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, um, I appreciate it. I hadn't heard of the screen, screen rotator. Um, I've played around with this. I, I wouldn't say a significant amount, but not an insignificant amount either, because I, I inherited a um, an Asus flipbook from my wife. And I have found most of these um, methods to be lacking. And maybe it's my lack of skill. But I ended up just essentially writing a script and triggering the script every time I wanted to flip the screen, because the I found that the driver's the sensor slash driver was buggy. Like it, it often couldn't figure out which way I was flipping things and stuff like that. So I haven't checked out the screen rotator project, but um, I didn't find these worth suggesting previously in my experience. That's fantastic. Yeah. I, I, to me, I'm, I'm just thankful that there are people out there that listen to the show and then catch some of the, some of our gaps and say, Hey, you guys didn't address this or, I have a better solution. And then they come back and say, here, here's the, the way to do something. And to, to me, that's the real uh, value of working inside of a large community is that, the, you know, rising tides, all ships rise. So I really appreciate Augustine writing in and, and giving us some feedback on that. Hopefully that helps out uh, the original user who wrote in. Uh, 
Dennis writes in and says, hi, Noah, I've been using Life360 since my daughter is a new driver and I need to know where she is in the event of an accident or a vehicle breakdown. I know that there are security risks with this app, but I haven't been able to find an affordable alternative. Do you have any recommendations? So I will start by telling you that I was a a Life360 user for a while. In fact, I think I even talked about it on the show. And since then, my tinfoil hat has gotten a little tighter and I have gotten more paranoid and I am no longer a Life360 user, to say the least. And in discussion about this email with Steve, I understand that Steve is also not a Life360 user. No. Um, so I, I don't want to admonish the user here. So I wanted to make a statement just as a maybe a point to think about, because sometimes things kind of um, a different viewpoint can be helpful when considering these things. So we, lots of people have, have heard of this thing called Elf on the Shelf. It's uh, for the people that haven't, essentially the idea is, is there's a little elf that you put on your shelf somewhere around Christmas time and it kind of acts as, I guess, Santa's proxy and it's always watching the children. And creepy. Uh, we decided that that's not going to happen in our house because, um, it was actually my wife that made the decision here. And she, she thought that this actually primed the children for um, being monitored, that this is okay. And when I was considering this, um, this question about like, Hey, I need to know where my, my child is when, when they're driving, I wondered if it wouldn't have a similar impact if we are priming our, our youth without really considering the implications. Like this, this is something that it's okay to be done because you know, and then fill in the blank. And again, I'm not admonishing. Um, I actually gave some thought to this and came up with the idea of maybe investigating own tracks as a self-hosted way. At least then your, your stuff is not in the cloud. Um, so I just thought I'd throw that out there for people that, that may not have considered that vantage point. Just, you know, it's, it's possible that by doing this, you're, you're paving the way for more kind of, um, not control, but just more surveillance than than might be necessary. So, a couple of things there. Atypical in the chat room recommends own cloud with next, or excuse me, own tracks with next cloud, which is something I was not aware of or hadn't considered. I looked at 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 own tracks back when I was using Life three hundred and sixty. To be honest, what kept me out of it was pure and utter laziness. I just wanted something that would work. And so I went and downloaded and and just gave it a shot. And I have to admit, like, if you're looking for the user experience, there are some really nice features of Life360, right? Like you can put in and say, hey, if my wife is anywhere within a half a mile from our kid's school, we can make the assumption that she is on between this time and this time. We can operate off the assumption that she is the one that's going to pick them up. So send me a notification to tell me that I don't have to. Uh, conversely, if she's not within a half mile of the school and we get to this point in the day, please send me a notification so that I know that I do have to go pick up my kids from school because she's not in the vicinity isn't going to make it. Um, so there, there are some things like that that I think they do really well. What would concern me is the privacy of the application. One of the things Life360 makes its money in one of two ways. The first way is you can pay for a premium membership and then you support the app and you are able to uh, you're able to use some additional features. But the other way that they very much make money is by selling the data to data brokers. And then those data brokers sell data back to other places like auto insurance companies 
who have a very, uh, very deep interest in knowing exactly how you drive, when you drive, how fast you drive, all of the things, right? Additionally, they publicly disclosed uh, back in uh, 2021 that they are entered into a partnership with the CDC to track mobility, quote unquote, mobility trends related to the COVID-19 pandemic, i.e., even if you didn't sign up to uh, to 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 do the COVID tracking stuff, they're going to help you out and they're going to do it anyway with a subscription that you pay for. So I think there's a huge amount of privacy implications that need to be considered and you very well might consider them and say, no, nah, that doesn't bother me. I'm perfectly fine with it. At the end of the day, it's my kid and her safety is more important to me than um, an ideological stance. And so I need this tool to make sure that my daughter's safe and neither Steve nor I would, would give you a hard time about that. But if you're interested in a self-hosted open source way to do this, I would suggest taking a look at own tracks. Um, if you tried it and decided it wasn't for you or you decided that it was too privacy invasive or whatever it is, at least all of the data is sitting on a box that you own that you can blow away. So considerations, food for thought. Our third email comes in from Jeremy. Jeremy writes in and says, hi, Noah, I'm looking at upgrading my Linux laptop in January to a new ThinkPad. I'm deciding between an X1 Carbon Gen 9 or perhaps a ThinkPad T14. I'm leaning towards the T14 as it has Ethernet and boasts a 27-hour battery life. Have you heard of any hardware driver issues with the new, new T14S? So, Steve, any thoughts on the ThinkPad? Well, Red Hat deploys them company-wide, although not specifically the T14. Um, I'd have to check to see if that's one of the models that we can actually request. The X1 Carbons are absolutely deployed everywhere, and everyone who gets one, aside from the people that need a ton of RAM, really love these things. They're thin, they're light, they uh, they go for quite a long time, and they just, as far as, uh, as, far as Lenovo goes, they look pretty good. So... Uh, I, I've said this before. I'll say it again. I have come to regard the um, the, the the X one as probably my favorite laptop that I've ever owned. In fact, um, about two weeks ago, I went to pick up my ThinkPad and it just powered off randomly. Thought that was kind of weird. Plugged it back in, got it back online, and as soon as I disconnected it from the AC adapter, powered off again. Did a little bit of looking on online, and it turned out. There were one of two things that was going to plague my ThinkPad. Either the charge Thunderbolt charge controller had gone out and needed some sort of an update or had failed entirely or the battery had failed. And nine screws later and about uh, maybe two and a half minutes later, I was able to conclude that it was in fact the battery was dead. Jumped on Amazon, ordered a replacement battery, got here in two days, took the six screws back out, threw a new battery in and uh, away I went. That is something you're not going to do on a MacBook. That's something that you're not going to do on a Microsoft Surface. That's something that you can do on a ThinkPad because they build them to take apart and do all of those things. As far as which to go with the X1 or the T14, so we deploy the T48, or well, I'll say the T4 series. So the T4, I think we've got 80s and 90s in, in circulation at speed. We like them for the same reason that you like the T14, that it has a wired Ethernet jack with the T480 and 490 series. It also has a removable battery, which our techs find super useful. If you're out in the field for, you know, sometimes days on end, uh, you can go with a with a pack of batteries and just start swapping through them. I will tell you that I believe the T14S does not include an Ethernet jack. I believe that's their thin model, and I believe that just has um, 
it, 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 it's confusing. The, the X1 and the T14S have Ethernet, but it's provided via a proprietary dongle that connects to the Thunderbolt jack, um, which is fine if you are willing to carry a dongle with you. Not so fine if you ever do something, which, of course, I would never do, hang your laptop from a switch from the Ethernet cable when you're up 40, 50 feet on a lift or something like that. Of course, I would never do that. But if you if you were the kind of person that would do that, this this would not work because it would become disattached. Um, all of them are going to have fantastic support in Linux. The one thing you'll want to be aware of is if you have trouble with Suspender, if you put Linux on there, what you'll want to do is restart into the UEFI uh, settings, go into the power settings and specify that you're using Linux as your operating system. And I, I had, when I first bought my X1, had a number of issues with it not going in or coming out of suspend. Toggled that option in the UEFI, and it fixed everything perfectly. But I think you'd be fine with either choice. If I were picking one, I'd probably, between the 14S and the X1, I'd go with the X1. 855-450-NOAA, that's 855-450-6624. The email live at com. John joins us from California. Hey, John, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. I just wanted to share that... Uh I've been playing with hosting my own stuff based on what you guys said on the show. I set up a Raspberry Pi hosting WireGuard and Plex, and for a while I've had an NVR, and now the WireGuard with me acts as everything in my house uh, that was not accessible before. And That's fantastic. I wanted to say how cool it was that it was all success. How long did it take you to set up WireGuard? Once I actually sat down and tried to do it, it took minutes. <laughs> I've been fretting trying because I was worried it wasn't going to work. I get all depressed, but it actually was pretty easy. I I I can't thank you enough for the call. I appreciate you sharing your story with. I've said this before. I you know it used to be we'd go to sit down and set up OpenVPN from start to finish, and maybe take fifteen twenty minutes to get everything all set up. WireGuard, it's you're literally gen- generating a set of keys and throwing it out there. And so we have a tutorial up on our YouTube channel. We'll have it linked for you in the show notes of podcast.asnoahshow dot com. It'll show you how to get a uh, a, a WireGuard server up and running if you want to play with it. Absolutely fantastic way um, to get connected and, and a little bit easier than uh, than OpenVPN. George joins us from New York. Hey, George, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Happy New Year, guys. Happy New Year, George. Happy New Year. All right, my question is, well, I guess it's not simple. Um, unfortunately, I'm in an apartment that I believe has the um, plaster with the you know the metal mesh. So I've been getting weird issues with my uh, Wi-Fi, like the 5G. Um, is there a way to improve it? Like right now, I have the a Verizon FiOS, and I have the Wi-Fi on that router turned off, and I have like a TP-Link, like a separate router connected to that as my wireless access that I kind of moved closer to my office, but I'm still kind of getting a weird issues when I'm using Zoom, like my Wi-Fi would kind of conk out. Is there a way to improve that or maybe like met, like a mesh network or something? Steve, what are your thoughts? So uh, having lived in an apartment for the last, I don't know, decade, I can absolutely sympathize with what you're, what you're running into. Um, there's going to be some stuff that you can do to help you out. There, there's going to be some stuff you can't because especially 5G is susceptible to interference from your neighbors. So the more people that got, that have wireless signals, even, you know, even the phones that are running on the 5G stuff, um, can interfere because the more stuff that is in the wireless space as a general rule can interfere with you. So, um, the, 
started you start by th- looking at the actual direction of the antennae make a difference because uh, with 5G because it is so um, so when you have a, a Wi-Fi signal it makes like this big wave up and down and in order to to carry more data and faster it has to the the wave is really small so it goes up and down really quickly but that also means that it it can't travel through solid objects and it's susceptible to kind of interference so the best way you can do this is almost almost line of sight as close to line of sight as you can get and point some wire like point at least a couple of antennae in your direction that will help um of course if you can get your um, router closer to your office that may also help uh, it sounds like you're kind of living in a faraday cage and you you might kind of be <laughs> stuck with um go, going with something like you can get those wi-fi extenders that plug into the wall and they literally just kind of bridge all of your network together um or you could do power over ethernet ethernet over power adapters which i did for a long time um and I guess I'll pass this off to Noah, who does the hotel stuff for a living. So one of the things I, I don't we don't deal with this kind of thing in hotels very often. We do deal with it in stadiums constantly because co- stadiums are big, gigantic steel buildings that uh, are really not very friendly to radio waves. Um, and what we've done in the past and now understand that there's a couple of caveats here uh, as I'm going to recommend this. But so. You have to be at a certain scale maybe for this to work, but we'll reach out to the cell phone provider. So in your case, Verizon, and we'll say, hey, we're having difficulty getting signal in here or in this spot. And what they'll do is they'll actually bring out a little device that connects to the Internet and then emulates the fire. Well, not emulates, but uh, supports the 5G signal from within side of the building. Now, that might be something that you, uh, my thought goes to. That might be not, might not be something you could do, but it might be something that your apartment complex can do. Now, I've not seen this on uh, Verizon, but I have seen uh, AT&T do this. They have a home device that you can purchase from AT&T. And the way I would sell it to you is because it's, there's just no other honest way to say this. You're paying for the infrastructure that you you're paying to put the infrastructure in your house that you thought you were getting when you signed up from the service from AT and T to begin with. Uh, I've always found it kind of ridiculous. You sign up for five G service and then they sell these add-ons um, that can that can emulate this or, or do this, and then it funnels it back through your internet connection. So that's a way you could go. What I would personally do, if you have a good internet connection in your home, I would invest in some really good access points. And I wouldn't worry about using the uh, the mobile broadband inside of your home. I'd just funnel it over the internet connection that you have, uh, assuming it's a hardwired internet connection. Are any of those helpful to you or possible for you? Um, I'm look. I'm definitely going to look into that one where you said to add the like the wire like uh, wireless access. Um, it's not like a mobile. Like I'm not getting like mobile internet. It's just you know how you have like the maybe I used it wrong, but um, like the five G coming from this like the router itself. So it's not like it's five gigahertz. Like, so we're talking yeah, about five gigahertz, not five G. Yes, yes. Gotcha. No, yeah, five gigahertz signal. Gotcha, gotcha. That's the issue that I'm having because you know that works best for like you know Zoom calls and stuff like that. Sure. So I would. So here's what I would tell you then. What I would say is almost certainly you will you will be able to improve your situation by using a different access point. The access point, you know, 
But the nice thing about the ones that the ISP gives you is it's a router, it's an access point, it's a switch, and it's a cable modem all in one. The downside to that is it's an access point, it's a switch, it's a router, and it's a modem all in one. And much like a spork isn't a particularly great fork, it isn't a particularly great spoon, but you get all in one. The combo devices, there it's all a compromise. It's not a very good switch. It's not a very good access point. It's usually a reasonably decent modem, um, but it's the idea is that you get it all in one. And just getting the access point, you know, Steve talked about antenna position or to antenna orientation. Excuse me. Just getting that access point up and out of wherever the whatever you know uh, manifold that you're cable modem is sitting on and getting that up and and more in line of sight with where you are in the house is going to you'd be surprised how dramatically that will improve um your situation but then the other thing it is it opens up you the option to do and we absolutely did this in steve's house you can put multiple access points throughout your home and so then uh if you're using something like a unify product or a ruckus product it the controller will measure the RSSI from the computer to the access point and then do a handoff so that you're always getting the best signal. I'll just uh, tap tap onto that. When I was in the apartment, I had two access points for 1,400 square foot uh, apartment and I still ran cable into my bedroom because we were getting so much interference. Like my, my apartment building was a twin. So like you could basically spit across the balcony and hit the people on the other side. <laughs> so we had a ton of people just right in, in a clump, right in, right in downtown of the city that I lived in. So, um, in my case, two access points were still not enough when I had, um, either latency sensitive, like a video call, or when I had something really important, I ran that ethernet cable into the bedroom. Like I just ran it on the ceiling. So it was out of the way. Um, and that's just what we had to do. Yeah, that was kind of a, that was the last plan of just running a really long <laughs> Ethernet cable. That's kind of what I do now. Uh, it's not long enough, so it's kind of like on the floor a little bit. But, yeah, no, that's that's the uh, the backup plan. So, I, I will, yeah, I I will make into that. I will make you an almost I'll make I'll almost make you a guarantee, George. I will bet you if you were just for the sake of argument. If you were to put an access point in every room that you intend to use Wi-Fi in, you would stop having Wi-Fi issues. We <laughs> had a, a true story. We had a red roof in and they uh, I hope I can say that on the air. We had a red roof in and they had constant issues with Wi-Fi because the hotel was built back in the 50s or 60s when Wi-Fi just wasn't a thing. And so they didn't build the hotel or the rooms with the concept of Wi-Fi. And so they did what many hotels do, which is put access points up and down the hallway and hope that that's good enough. And as it turns out, it's very much not good enough. And it they, they constantly suffered from problems. So we went back in there and put one access point in every single room. And that was the last time I think we ever had a call from them about a problem with Wi-Fi. Everyone had perfect Wi-Fi. Now, that's a very expensive way to go, and it requires a lot of work because you're cutting into all your walls. But it is it might be an option for you. So you might consider at least where you're with the room that you're doing your Zoom calls in, having that access point right in there and see if that doesn't get you somewhere. Right. I'll look into uh those last few options. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, I appreciate the call. 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. James calls from Idaho. Hey, James, welcome into the program. Hey, I was wondering what's the best way, because I'm looping it around the bash script. There's sort of a bash script, and it's not reliable. I've tried to two or three variables, 
and this phone keeps dropping, so I don't know if it's going through or. If... Okay. Well, we'll 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 take it. We'll do the best, Steve. Looping bash scripts, bash scripts inside of a bash script, Inception so, bash scripts. Yeah, um, that's easy enough to do. It depends on. Um, are you having to pass variables in between them and setting shell variables and stuff like that? There's a, there's a lot of unknowns here, but essentially you can make a, go ahead. I have to pass a variable, and the problem is I tried a couple recommendations and it would run two or three times and then it would, it would just not run it. This, the, when we launched the script, the second, you know, the call out to the, to call it, um, reliably, it would go, oh, and go, oh, we're done. <laughs> I'd have to take a look to see what the script was doing because that can be caused by any number of things like a, a process hanging or um, so just, just a, an aside. For example, my Christmas tree light script, if I try and fire off two signals almost simultaneously to the lights, one of them will get stuck. And so... If they're too close together trying to send that signal to the Christmas tree lights, even though it's done on the shell, um, it just gets confused and doesn't do anything. So it depends on the types of processes that you're calling and how they're being cleaned up by the operating system, whether they're free to be doing their task again. Okay. I'll look a little more on it. I just figured it may have been a preferred way that works really well, reliable, but I haven't tried if you want to send your, your script in, I will absolutely take a look at it. If you send it to live at asknoahshow.com, um, I will take a look at it and see if I see anything. All right. I'll, I'll go around to, this is one of my Tinker Toy scripts where I'm just trying something to see how well it would work or not work. <laughs> All right. Well, send it in to us and we'll let you know. And uh, I appreciate the call. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Hey, you know what, Steve? We went, we're down to just the last few minutes of the episode. And as it turns out, we had a whole bunch of show prep done that we're not going to get here to today. And you know what? I couldn't be happier about it. This is what we set out to do. We spent the entire hour talking to people and helping them through problems and serving the community. And if I had one goal for what we had set out to do from day one in 2017, April 4th, April 3rd, excuse me, uh, 2017, we set out to launch the show. This is what it is. You notice that what was required to make this happen is participation from you, the listener. You called in, you wrote in, you chatted, you participated, and you got on the air and we were able to help you. So please, let's do that again. We would love to help. I want to make a, there's a couple of things I just, I really want to touch on real quick. If you could please take a look at the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. Check out the article on the Lumina desktop. My friend, and producer JT Pennington is looking for some feedback on the release and they want to know what bugs to target for for the next release. So something we we're going to cover in the news, we didn't quite get to it, but I would ask you to uh, head over to the show notes and at least take a look at that article um, so that we can kind of help him out. Additionally, we're switching to Mumble, so you can learn more at mindripmedia.com slash Mumble. You can get connected to the Mumble server, and so we'll still have the Jitsi available. If you're looking for an easy way to jump in, you're welcome to do that. But we also have static software, so if you just want to configure a client, have it connected, and join the show each week, you can do it that way. We are releasing our special edition, uh, the episode of How Alta Speed Technologies Got Started. We had the whole team in the studio. We recorded it. It was a blast. A ton of useful information. It's almost two hours long. That's going to launch... Or 
or that's going to be released this Friday. I, we are going to have the team back in the studio next Tuesday to answer questions. So make sure to catch the episode on Friday. Make sure to be back next Tuesday to answer, to get your questions answered. If you have any follow up questions or comments for the team, uh, please do that. Also, we are resuming our Linux user group meetings in the, in the local area. So if you're in North Dakota, Minnesota and you're interested, uh, we meet at Altaspeed Technologies on the second floor, uh, 6 p.m. Central. Our next meeting is going to be January 6th, 2022. So it's 1191 South Columbia Road. You can learn more at gettogether.community. Search Grand Forks Lug uh, or gfklinux.org. The music in our ears means we're out of time. Hey, thank you so much from wherever you are, however you listen to us. We appreciate you being a part of the community. This Ask Noah show is recorded live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can more, learn more at asknoahshow.com. See you next week.